Bible, would you please open up to 1 John chapter 5, and we are going to read from verses 13 to 21. So read with me, please. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now and we ask, Lord, that your spirit would fill this place and give us insight into your word, Lord. We ask that, Lord, you would anoint our ears to hear, anoint our hearts to receive your precious word, Lord. And we pray that it would, we would receive it as your living and active word. And Lord, we ask that you would do work inside our hearts today. Lord, we ask that you would uh, do a work of bringing assurance to those who need assurance and, Lord, bringing a challenge to those who need a challenge. Lord, we ask that you would speak into the, the deep things of our lives, Lord, and that you would draw us nearer to Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You know, in this world that we live in, I think that there are a lot of things that we don't know. And our... You know, humanity's greatest efforts to study the world scientifically, to study the human mind, to study society, uh, there are a great number of things which we not only do not know, but which we realize that we cannot know. We don't know what the future holds. We can't predict catastrophes and natural disasters. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And in addition to that, the world, you know, has become so interconnected that uh, as, as the world has become interconnected, we become aware of how different people, different societies think and function, and that has led to a rise in relativistic thinking, which essentially says that no one's beliefs are either right or wrong, they're just a matter of opinion based on their perception of things. And what that means is that Many things which we previously thought that we knew, stable points, uh, they have been brought into question. And we find ourselves sometimes in a position where we're wondering, well, what is it that we can really know actually? Is there anything that we can be sure of? You know, maybe you would say, well, what can I be sure of? Well, I can be sure that the sky is blue. Well, someone would come around and tell you, well, Technically, the sky isn't blue. That's really just your perception of how it looks to you. 
but it's not actually blue. That's just relative. Maybe you'd say, well, what do I know? Well, I know that the ocean is really big. Well, that's kind of relative too. It's just bigger than you are. But in the scope of the universe, it's really not that big at all. So that's relative too, right? Well, maybe you say, well, I know it's wrong to kill people or to lie or to cheat on your wife. And the response you might get would be, well, that's relative too. You, you only think that way because of the culture that you grew up in. But that's not necessarily true for all people in all situations. And maybe you get frustrated and you say, well, if I know anything, I know that I'm here right now. Well, you can't really be 100% sure of that either, can you? Because that might just be a matter of your perception as well. You know, maybe you just perceive that you're here, but in reality, you're just a bunch of particles floating around, and you just perceive that you're here in this place and other people are here too. So maybe it's real or maybe it's just something you imagine. You get what I'm saying? That the, the relativistic mindset, which has become so dominant in our society, tells us that everything is gray. There's hardly anything that you can say is black and white, and there's nothing that you can be 100% sure of, whether morally or ethically or even scientifically or even theologically. But in contrast to this relativistic spirit of the age, we have the Word of God, which tells us that there are, in fact, certain things which you can know with certainty. And when we open up God's word, what we find is so much wisdom, which when you think about it this way, it's so relevant to the days that we live in, the times that we live in. God's word gives us a bearing on life. And while it does leave room for some gray areas, it, it also makes it clear that there are some things which we can know for sure. Some things that are not questioned, some things which are black and white. And here in 1 John, John gives us some things which we can know. Some areas where we can have assurance. The dictionary defines assurance as full confidence, freedom from doubt, certainty, to act in the assurance of success, freedom from timidity. Now, doesn't that just sound wonderful? Uh, in the light of the relativistic thinking of this age, it sounds absolutely wonderful to me. Uh, Throughout this letter, John uses the word know, to know something, a great number of times. And in the section that we read today, he uses the word seven times and he makes five distinct no statements about things that we can be sure of, things that we can go to the bank on, some things that we can have assurance of. I've got them listed here for you. First, he says in verse 13, we can have assurance of salvation. In verse 14 or 15, he talks about assurance in prayer. In, verse six, in verses 16 through 18, he talks about having an assurance of transformation. And in verse 19, he talks about the assurance of spiritual reality. And in verse 20, we see that we can have assurance in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's so important, so essential that we have things that we can know, that we can be assured of. They're like stable points that we can build our lives upon, that we can build our faith upon in the midst of a sea of uncertainty. You know, I know how important it is for my kids to have stability. 
You know, they desire it so much. They crave stability. And as a family, as you probably know, you know, we just moved here from Europe. And uh, we have a lot of upheaval in our lives right now. We moved our family halfway across the world. We left everything that our kids were accustomed to. And we've been living out of suitcases. And so we've made a big effort because of this to make sure that our kids know that there are some stable points in their lives that they can always count on, you know. Like that mom and dad are always going to be there for them. That we love them, that we're never going to leave them. And that we're Christians, that we love God, we pray, we worship God, we serve God. And no matter where we live, by God's grace, these things are never going to change. These are stable points in their lives. And and all of us need these kind of stable points. Especially in the world that we live in today, where everything that we once thought was true has been called into question and there's very little that we can be sure of and God's word really gives us those stable points those things that we can know those things that we can be sure of those areas where we can have assurance and so I'd like to actually start out today by looking at the last verse of this section which is actually the last verse of the entire letter verse 21 John concludes this letter with these words Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, why would I want to start with this verse? Well, because as the last verse of this book, this is, in essence, a summary of everything he's saying in this book. It seems a little bit out of place. He's talking about assurance of things and, you know, who's a, who's a real believer, the trademarks of a real believer, the hallmarks. And then all of a sudden he says, keep yourselves from idols. And you wonder... Where did that come from? But here's what I want you to see. That essentially this summarizes the whole message of the book. And I want to just talk about why. This warning against idolatry is so important. And there's really, this is such a huge topic. There's so much that could be said about this issue of idolatry in the human heart. Uh, Even for us who are Christians. Because as one writer and author put it, he said that the human heart is an idol factory. That's what our hearts do. They're just making idols all the time. We have this propensity for worship. And, uh, you know, we just have this propensity to get off into idolatry. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. So I'll say that again. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. An idol is a substitute or a false god who takes the place of the true God. Anything can be an idol. Even things which are very good. In fact, things which are good actually are more likely to become idols in our lives. See, an idol is not necessarily something bad. Actually, an idol is something which which in your heart goes from being a good thing to being the ultimate thing. To being the very purpose for your existence. And it takes the place of God, that place which uh, which only God is worthy of. So the warning here to keep ourselves from idols means keeping yourselves from worshiping or trusting or following anyone or anything other than God himself primarily. But if you think about the context of this letter, we can actually get a good picture of what is that exact kind of idolatry that John is referring to in this letter. 
See, the context of this letter was that there was a heresy at this time called Gnosticism. Probably, if you've been around church for any time, you've heard of this heresy. It happened a long time ago, but, you know, there's still traits of this kind of thinking around today. The word gnosis in Greek literally means knowledge. So these were people who claimed to have this secret, esoteric knowledge about Jesus and the things of God, uh, which were not in the scriptures. The Gnostics did not believe in the Jesus whom the Christians taught. And that's significant here because who's writing? John the Apostle, right? He's writing this letter. He's not just somebody who heard about Jesus because somebody came and told him about him and he just got some secondhand information. This is a man who lived with Jesus for years, walked with Jesus, heard him teach. He saw him crucified. He saw him risen from the dead. He was there. He knew it all firsthand, personally. The Gnostics, though, they denied Jesus as Jesus had revealed himself, as the apostles knew him. They denied the incarnation, which means they denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that Jesus was both God and man. Instead, they had made up their own concept of Jesus. And that's really what I want to talk about. They had made up their own concept of Jesus apart from the scriptures, apart from the teachings of the apostles who had known Jesus. They taught that Jesus was one who had found and harnessed this secret divine knowledge. And that is why he was able to do miracles. And, and what they essentially said was, hey, if you join our group, we'll help you find that knowledge tr- too. And then you can be just like Jesus and you can do miracles too. You can find that divine knowledge. But here's what I want you to see. The idolatry that John is referring to here when he says, keep yourselves from idols, he's referring to this idolatry of the Gnostics. And what was the idolatry of the Gnostics? It was this. Instead of worshiping the true Jesus... They had made up their own Jesus, their own version of Jesus, according to what they thought he should be like. That's why in verse 20, if you remember that, he uses the word true three times. The true God. You know, he's talking about this is the real deal. And he says, and keep yourself from all that idolatry. Keep yourself from that not true Jesus of the Gnostics. The idolatry that he's warning about here is the practice of making your own Jesus, of your own fancy Worshipping a Jesus of your own creation, of your own imagination, rather than the true Jesus. Now, think about this. How relevant is that for us in Colorado today? I mean, that's like the situation that we live in every day. You know, because just think about how popular it is to do that exact sort of thing today. Especially here in Colorado. You meet people all the time. They'll tell you, yeah, I'm spiritual. I believe in a higher power. I believe in God. But they don't adhere to any particular religion. Rather, they have their own religious belief, which is like a collaboration of a bunch of different ideas, which they've gotten from various religions. And then they've mixed in a few original ideas, too. Maybe it's part of that American independent spirit, which can be a positive thing, but when it comes to making up your own religion, that's very not a positive thing. You can get into a lot of trouble. It's so popular these days, you know, for people to have their just own independently created belief system about who God is, about the afterlife, about who Jesus is, etc. And, you know, a lot of people, they approach religious beliefs like, like when they go to the buffet, 
or they go to the potluck, you know? They'll be like, yeah, I'll take some of the potato salad, and I like a lot of that chicken curry, but I don't want any of the green jello, and I don't want any asparagus, you know? They'll be like, I'll take some reincarnation and a side of karma and a little bit of grace of God and definitely give me some angels but I don't want the Jesus is the only way to God or the sin or the submission to divine authority you know and then they make their little plate and they go sit down and and that's what they do so people make these hybrid composite religions and uh, and when someone does such a thing Think about what they're doing. They're making a god of their own creation. And then they're worshiping it. Well, that is the very essence of idolatry. In Isaiah chapter 44, check it out if you, if you have your Bible with you. Uh, Isaiah writes about the foolishness of those who create idols and then worship what they just created like half an hour ago. You know, he says, you go and you cut down a tree. Then you burn half of it to keep your house warm. And then you use the other half to make a god for yourself. And you make it look like you. And then you worship it. He says, how demeaning is that? You're worshiping something that you created. Don't you think that God is greater than you? Don't you think that he is your creator rather than the other way around? Don't you realize that he is the judge of the living and the dead, not the other way around? You know, we're not doing God a favor by worshiping him. I, think, I really think that some people have this idea, this feeling. Maybe they don't say it, but they kind of feel like, you know, I'm doing God a, a big favor by worshiping him and, and singing his praises. You know, and, and then if you take that to the next level, you get to the point where you say, you know, if God would just change a few things about himself, he would be more acceptable to me. Uh, rather, the truth is that he is the one before whom we must bow. You know, creating your own God, that is the essence of idolatry. They used to do it with wood and stone. They still do it in certain cultures. But in the West, we, we tend not to use wood and, uh, and stone to create our idols, but we use our minds. And we form concepts of God that we like and that we find acceptable to us, that we can swallow. And that is really the heart of relativism, what I started out talking about, right? That I am the ultimate judge. And there are many opinions out there. So how do I know which one is right? Well, I use my mental capacity and logic and I determine which of those I determine to be correct and right. In other words, I am the ultimate judge of right and wrong, true and false. You know, one thing you hear people say from time to time is, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something and that works for you. Well, what God's word tells us here is that that's not true at all. Uh, It very much matters what you believe. You can't just go around making up your own religion. If you do that, that's called idolatry. You're worshiping something which you created. You are the creature, not the creator. You, the creature, rather than worshiping your creator who has revealed himself to you over the ages in multiple ways, you're choosing to worship something of your own creation. So in response to this Gnostic heresy, which John here identifies as idolatry because they have created their own Jesus and rejected the true Jesus, 
John, he sets forth the true facts of the Christian faith, which can be known with certainty. And here in verse 13, he starts out by telling us what we can have assurance of. He says, you can have assurance of salvation. You know, it's been said that this letter is like a family photo album because it describes those who are members of the family of God, those who have been born of God, as we talked about in the sermon last week. When a person is born of God, they receive the life of God, which is eternal life. And if a person has been born again and they've become a new creation in Christ, then their life is going to reflect that change in some very definite and concrete ways. John lists some of those for us. He says they will acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They will love God. They will love God's children. They will obey his commands and they will live a life characterized by repentance and a life characterized by continual, or, or rather than a life con- characterized by continual and unrepentant sin. And John's purpose in writing this letter is that those who have truly been born again, whose lives are truly characterized by these hallmarks of someone who has really come to know the Lord, he says, my goal in writing you is that you would know with certainty that you do have eternal life. That there would be no need for you to be hoping that maybe you do, or guessing, or worrying, or stressing, or worrying, how do I feel at the moment? Do I feel like I have eternal life? Do I feel like I'm forgiven? No, he says, in the clearest possible manner, he says that those who truly have put their faith in the gospel, they can know, they can have assurance that they have eternal life. Now, for some of you here, Those words are super comforting and encouraging, and they should be. They're intended to be. There are people who do live in constant fear of losing their salvation. You know, they're always afraid that they're going to die, and then, like, right before they die, they're going to, like, trip on something and say a bad word, and then they're going to eat it and die, and then what? Then they're going to go to hell, and they're going to not be saved, you know? Or they're worried that they're going to accidentally turn against God and then die in a car accident, and they lost their salvation, and it's over, you know? Uh, There are people, you know, even though they love Jesus, they're so afraid that they're going to end up in hell because they're going to accidentally make a mistake and blow it right before they die. Other people will say, you know, they they struggle with this fear of losing their salvation, and, and their struggle is, I don't feel like I'm saved. I know what the Bible says, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus and all that, but I don't feel it. Shouldn't I feel something? I don't feel like I have eternal life. What God's word tells us is that regardless of what I feel, I can know that I have eternal life if I have put my faith in the gospel for real. And my life reflects it. My life shows the fruit that that's true. I can know with assurance that I will go to heaven when my time here on earth is over. But I would also add this, that on the other hand, if you are not in that camp, if you, are, uh, if you have not put your faith in the gospel and been born again, and you probably would know that if that's you, then these words are not intended to comfort you. And I hope you realize that. They are, in, they are intended to challenge you and tell you, hey, you need to put your faith in the gospel and be born again. That is the only way that you can possibly have assurance of eternal life. 
Now, as you may know, there are some Christian traditions which have traditionally taught that a person can never, in fact, be sure of their salvation. The best they can do is hope that they're saved, but they can never be sure. Maybe some of you even grew up in such a tradition. But I want you to see that that goes in contradiction to what God's Word says here. It goes in contradiction to what we read here in 1 John. Historically, this teaching became prevalent in the Middle Ages in Europe. This was during a time when when people did not have much access to the Bible for themselves uh, because many people, the majority of people, were illiterate. And on top of that, the Bible was not available in the vernacular. It was only available in Latin and Greek, uh, not in the common languages of the people as it is today. And by not letting people have this assurance of salvation, what they... the religious organization at the time essentially did was that they kept people dependent on the church out of fear that they would go to hell. They kind of kept them, you know, tied to the church because they kept them in fear of, of they would never let them have assurance of salvation. Why? Well, I'll talk about that in a second. But it was really during the Reformation when the Bible got into the hands of the common people and it was translated into common languages that people realized that God's word did, in fact, promise them assurance of salvation. You see, the fear of the church in the Middle Ages and and even today in in some areas is that, that if people would gain this assurance of their salvation then they would no longer come to church, right? Because then they wouldn't think they needed to. Because they would be set free. And that would be the worst possible thing if people were set free. They would just go wild, you know? Christians gone wild. And and they'd leave the church and they'd go off and sin and do all kinds of crazy stuff. But, But you guys see this, you know this, that that thinking is so backwards, right? That is the opposite of what John is seeking in his epistle. That is exactly the opposite of what he sought to do in writing this epistle. The church in the Middle Ages, what were they saying? They were saying, come to church so that you can be saved. Right? God's word, here especially in 1 John, it says, on the other hand, we go to church and worship God. Why? Because we are saved. See, that's a completely different approach. The one says, come so that you can be saved. The other one says, come because you are saved and you've been set free and worship and enjoy the Lord's grace. It's a difference between controlling people with fear, which is a form of manipulation, and leading people with love, which is what God does. And I think that the same kind of thinking exists today in, in different ways, uh, in the same way as well, but in different ways too, uh, in regard to the teaching of God's grace. Now, I've heard people say, you know, you better watch out with preaching too much grace, because if you preach too much grace, people are going to hear that message of how, how radically loving and gracious God is, and they're just going to go wild. They're going to go out, and they're going to stop coming to church, and then, you know, what's going to happen? But what really happens is this. When people hear the message of God's grace, it sets them free. And those who are born of God, as John says, like we talked about all sermon, last sermon, uh, it makes those people who are really born again, it makes them fall in love with God all the more. It makes them be all the more in awe of God and, and, and just love him and be so filled with thanksgiving in their heart to God who is so gracious to me, a sinner. 
And for those who haven't been born again, well, maybe it does make them go out and sin more. But that just reveals where they're at. They haven't actually been born again. They haven't put their faith in the gospel and been transformed by it. And I really believe this, that our goal with a, with a person who hasn't been born again is not to make them act like a Christian. You know, do these Christian things so that you can be saved. No. Our goal is to share the gospel with them so they can be born again, so that they're inside, they'll have that desire to worship God. And, and uh, you know, if you haven't been born again, I got to tell you that acting like a Christian outwardly is not going to get you eternal life. That should be clear enough from the Bible. Our goal as Christians is not to make people act like Christians. It is that they would truly understand the gospel, that they would truly be born again to new life and eternal life through faith in the finished work of Christ. If you've really been born of God, born again, and you really put your faith in the gospel and received the grace of God, then this knowledge that you can have assurance of your salvation, let me tell you, I can tell you this with assurance, it's not going to cause you to go out and be like, awesome, now I can go out and sin a bunch. Rather, it's going to drive you to worship God. That's what John says. Those who have been born of God, they obey God. They, They obey his commandments. They love him. They love his people. And when you hear that message of God's grace, what does it do? Does it make you say, yeah, cool, I can go do a bunch of sinning? No, uh, it makes you, just drives you to worship God all the more. With all the more awe and love and appreciation in your heart towards God because of all that he's done for you. In verses 14 and 15, we read about another kind of assurance, the assurance we can have in prayer. I'll read that. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All sin is wrongdoing, but there is sin that does not lead to death. I read too far, didn't I? Okay, that's all right. God's word's good. So, how do we know whether or not we're praying according to the will of God? Well, you know, the easy answer is that we have the revealed will of God here in God's word. We can pray informed on the basis of that. But think about this. What about the particular will of, what about God's will for a particular situation? For example, we've been looking for a house, and there are a few houses that we prayed for, we prayed about, that we asked God, yeah, God, we pray that we would get this house. And then we didn't get them. So we just got to conclude that that wasn't God's will for us. So, but the question is, how do we know whether or not we're praying according to the will of God in a particular situation? Well, that's the beauty and the kindness of the Lord. That if it's not his will for that particular situation, then he won't give it to you. And what an assurance that is. How much comfort we can find in the sovereignty of God. And the goodness of God, his character. That his divine wisdom, his ultimate wisdom and knowledge and his goodness and his sovereignty. You know, the knowledge that in every situation he's in control and he's working out his good plan, which is for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. 
so we can pray with assurance knowing that his will will be done. Our job is to get our will in line with his will. Our goal in prayer, right, it's not to get God to do our thing, like to convince him, come on, really, this is a good idea. I know you don't think it is, but it really is, you know. Uh, On the other, no, opposite, our goal is to align and to get in sync with the heart of God and the agenda of God and become a part of what he is doing and wants to do and pray according to that. Let's continue on. I already read verses 16 through 18, but I'll read verse 18 because I think I didn't read that one. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here we meet this idea of sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death, and this is something which has confused a lot of people over the years. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm confused right now as to what exactly that's referring to. I think, you know, a general practice in in dealing with these potentially confusing passages, the best thing we can do is, in a case like this, to consider this verse in light of what the Bible has to say about this same topic in other places. That way we're taking into consideration the whole counsel of God's word. And the conclusion that you come to is that the death being talked about here is not merely physical. It's spiritual as well because that's the way John's talking in this letter. So the sin that's not leading to death, sorry, so the sin not leading to death is sin for which forgiveness is possible. And opposite that is that the sin that leads to death is sin for which forgiveness is not possible. Because, why? Because it's unrepented of. And it is of the nature that John has been talking about. It's this chronic sin which characterizes a person's life, which they are unrepentant of. In verse 17, he talks about how all sin is sin, right? Sin is sin. But some sin leads to death and other sin doesn't. So what's the difference? What he's talking in these few verses is essentially this. Uh, A person who's been born of God still commits sin sometimes, but it doesn't characterize their life. And it doesn't lead to ultimate spiritual eternal death because they repent of it, because it's covered by the blood of Jesus. However, a person who has not been born of God, they live a lifestyle of sin. And and this is sin that leads to death because it is unrepented of. It's not covered by the blood of Jesus. There has been no change or transformation in their life of being born again. See, John, as he has been, he's still juxtaposing two types of people. Those who have been born of God and those who have not been born of God. And that's why he says that the person who's been born of God, they do not keep on sinning because Jesus keeps them from being ensnared once again, taken captive once again by the evil one. In other words, Jesus has set that person free, and he won't let them be taken captive by the enemy again. But here where he talks about, he uses the phrase, you know, two words, keep on. He doesn't keep on sinning, right? That means to practice something or to do it continuously. It's talking about a lifestyle, Last week, my dad took Balaj and I to a driving range to hit some golf balls. Now, I hadn't hit a golf ball in almost 15 years. There's like two golf courses in Hungary, and they were not where I lived. And uh, 
And it, I was, I got to tell you this too, I was never any good to begin with. Like, if you ever take me out golfing, you should just block out the whole day because I'm going to score like a 200 or something, you know? And uh, I was never good to begin with. My swing is just raw. It's terrible. I look like a baseball player. And, and you know, uh, when you go to the driving range, though, you see these guys who are not like me. Uh, these guys who stand there for hours and they practice this thing, you know, with their leg like this and all that. And they practice this golf swing all the time. You see them, they'll be at work practicing their golf swing on the bus, you know, wherever. They're just always practicing their golf swing. Why? Because they want to get better at it. That's their thing, you know. They want to do it more. They want to do it better. They want to perfect it. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here where he talks about someone who practices sin. They're sinning continuously. It's like a golf swing. We're talking about a lifestyle where a person's goal in life is to do it more and do it better. Rather than repenting of sin, they're trying to get better at it and do it some more, right? Two kinds of people being juxtaposed. Think of it this way. A pig and a sheep are two different animals with two different natures. Sometimes a sheep falls into the mud, but that's not where they want to be. That's not where they want to live their life. That is not their goal in life, to do that a lot. But a pig, their goal in life is to find some mud and not only fall into it, but to roll around in it. And their only hope is that they can do the exact same thing again tomorrow. You know? Two kinds of people with two kinds of natures being juxtaposed here. They both sin. A person who has been born again still commits sin. And we all know that very well, right? But the one sins unto death because they have not been born of God. The other does not sin unto death because why? Their sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. It's been paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the assurance that we have here, here in verse 18, is that the person who has been born again will be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They will be changed. You can be assured of it. They will be transformed into the image of Christ. Why? As Jeff mentioned earlier, we have the Holy Spirit within us as a deposit. And he's working in us and changing us into the image of true perfection, which is Jesus Christ, the perfect man. As they, and as they are changed, as a person is changed, their appetites and desires change as well. They're transformed. And their heart will be delighted with the idea of living for the Lord and living to please the Lord. In verse 19 through 20, we see our final two assurances in this section. The assurance of spiritual reality in verse 19 and the assurance in the finished work of Christ in verse 20. I'll go ahead and read that. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We can be assured that there is a God, that there is a Satan, that there is an invisible spiritual realm, and we can be assured that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and has finished that which he came to accomplish, to reveal the Father to us and to give us eternal life through faith in him. We can be assured that when Jesus said, it is finished, 
that it really was finished. Everything that needed to be done so that you could be forgiven, it's been finished. Everything that needed to be done so that you could be reconciled to God, everything that needed to be done so that you could have eternal life, it is finished. And you can be assured of that. And that is the great message of this book, that it is finished. The work of Jesus on the cross, it's finished, and you can know that with assurance. And if you put your faith in the finished work of Christ, then you can have confidence before God that you are his child. No matter how your feelings might change about that, whether you do or do not feel that God loves you at any given moment, whether you do or do not feel forgiven, whether or not you feel that you have eternal life, you can know it because Jesus said on the cross with his last breath, it is finished. That's what assurance means. And my desire is that all of us in here would have that blessed assurance today. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the assurance that we have in you. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that it is finished. And with so many things in this world that are so uncertain that we can't know for sure, Lord, we thank you that there are stable points in our lives. And what stable points these are, Lord. Just huge, important assurances that you give us in your word. And thank you, Lord, that these are rocks, stable points that we can build our lives and our faith upon. And Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in here who has not yet truly believed in the gospel in their heart of hearts, Lord. I I pray that you would shake them up and you would bring them to the place of repentance and faith unto salvation, Lord, that they too could have that blessed assurance of knowing that they have eternal life. And Lord, I, I also pray for those who are here who are struggling with fear or with anxiety that... You know, they they don't know. They're struggling with doubt and fear. They wonder if they do have eternal life. They wonder, am I really forgiven? Am I really saved? Lord, I pray that, that if they have been born of you and put their faith in the gospel, Lord, by your spirit, comfort their hearts and give them that blessed assurance that your word guarantees. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.